Coming up next, the bookening reads the premier novel, one of the premier novels by the greatest female novelist of all time, the female Shakespeare. Jaw herself. Jaw. Jaw. As we call her. Jaw, as we call her. And that, of course, stands for Jane Austen and her re- re- reading her immortal classic, Emma. Welcome to The Bookening. My name is Nathan Alberson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I'm joined by Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. How are you doing, Jake? I'm also joined by Brandon <laughs> Chastain, the master who's a past. What are you? PhD. All right, let's talk about Emma. All right, here we Whoa. go. Hey. Getting right to business, yeah. buddy. If, if you listener, if you're listening, which you are, because by the very definition of the word and the fact that you're hearing this, you are, it's just not possible. Stop, you're doing it again. We talked about this. We did this last time. We just need to get into the book. Yeah, but I just wanted to tell them that if they're listening, I what I'm trying to do is get into the book quickly because it took a long time last episode. They even took the time to download the episode, probably, right? Most people download podcasts now. Yeah, or well, stream. Or stream. But that takes time. Right? No, they have someone perform them for them. What are you talking about? <laughs> you, <laughs> you said they're listening to this because they're the listeners. Right. And I'm acknowledging that they are also must have taken the time to download. They're not in the room. They're not in here with us. No. Oh. How do you think podcasts work? I thought we were like in some sort of a... Avant-garde theater. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like a science theater. A Jim, you know. Jim Carrey film? Yeah. The, that's that's uh, the those one, lights. The they're not cameras? No. This is not like a Truman Show. People no. don't watch me while I sleep. Hmm. Well, no. let's say we talk about Emma. All right. Let's do this. All right. Let's do it. Part two. Well, I guess we're talking about Mr. Knightley now. Um, I realized we never did our, uh, what's that thing? Baggage never, check. We never talked about our baggage check. So just real quick, I like Jane Austen, in case you haven't noticed, and I love this novel, and I loved it the first time, and I loved it this time. That's my baggage. My baggage is I had only ever read Pride and Prejudice. I came out of Anna Karenina, uh, you know, big, long, slow burn, and wanting and hoping and expecting something instantly engaging, fun, funny, light, and still just as incisive. You know, just like if you could take Tolstoy's 815 pages and knock it down to 200 and still get all of the exposition, that's... But funny. But well, but but actually being funny. That's how I think of Austin. <laughs> tall order. <laughs> it's a very tall order. So that's what I... That was my baggage. That's what I was expecting, what I was wanting. And that fed into my disappointment no wonder at those the first beginning. eight chapters didn't do it for you. Yeah, yeah I know, right? Yeah, it was a really nasty, awful expectations to come to any book with. I freely admit, once I got through the first, once I got to about the, the time of the painting where Mr. Elton stuff starts to heat up, then I was right back into it. One of the really weird things about Jane Austen, especially since she wrote her novels over such a condensed period of time, as I understand it, her novels are very different. Like she really, you really can track her progression as an artist and as a person that was perceiving the reality. Pride and Prejudice is a feels like it's written by a person of a different age and experience than Emma does. Yeah. Mansfield Park is a much 
darker and weirder novel than either one of them and i'm excited to talk about that maybe next year and then persuasion is well you say that and i remember when i first started asking you my assumption was that pride and prejudice came later and it's it's the exact opposite no it's one of the and and you see that by the time you get to the end what you were referencing earlier just i think you said it was a more mature Mm -hmm. novel more mature more mature characterization going on i think that's true but i was just you know from the craft standpoint I was like, why? Why is she not bothering to make me invested or care about anybody for so long? Like this, you know, I I assumed it was a a lack of uh, maturity in her writing in her artistry that wasn't pre- I mean, in Pride and Prejudice it's you know, from the word go or at least it was for me mm. but actually it's her not condescending to you yeah it's time. her not caring it's, 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 she's telling a she's telling you come a more up to mature... my level I'm not gonna throw in five jokes in the front first chapter just to make you happy yeah, yeah. you should just read it because I wrote it right I'm telling a more mature story here and it's gonna take it requires more maturity and patience of you and so deal with it mm. and I didn't appreciate that at first but but I grew to love it so there you go <laughs> Brennan, your baggage, sir? Um, my baggage was, I, this is actually one of the novels I have never read by her, but I've come to trust her. And so I knew it was going to be good. I don't doubt that, that her books are going to be good. She's like Shakespeare, you know, that whatever you're about to read is good. So that's what it reminded me of when you said that every novel was different in tone as the only other author that I know of where you cannot expect, you cannot guess what the tone of the what you're about to read is going to be until you're actually reading it is Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. Yeah. a wide range of sensibilities. All right, so that's Baggage Check. Yay! Uh, Mr. Knightley, I found in my research, fellas, that on BuzzFeed's complete ranking of Jane Austen's male hotties, he came in second after Captain Wentworth in Persuasion. They listed his prose as he doesn't back down from a challenge. Blunt, in a hot way. Tolerant of Emma being a complete daddy's girl. Cons, takes his sweet time to get to the point. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was useful, thanks. <laughs> when uh, Were they wanting him to go for her when she was 13? <laughs> yeah, I think he probably should have taken his sweet time to get to that particular point. Uh, he outranked Darcy on BuzzFeed's list. Darcy actually came in fourth. Wow. One of his pros was listed as Colin Firth, emerging from a lake. <laughs> so okay. Thank you, BuzzFeed. So discuss. <laughs> Colin Firth emerging from a lake. No, just, uh, <laughs> where would you place uh, Mr. Knightley in your your ranking of Jane Austen's male hotties? I think I'd rank him higher than Darcy. I would. Because I think that, like we've been saying about this novel, or at least I think that we're beginning to say about this novel, he's a more mature version of Darcy. He's a mature, and I think he's a, I don't want to say better man, but a more mature man. So maybe it's the difference between a 40-year-old and a 25-year-old or whatever I, Darcy I'm not is. sure that he's a more mature man, but his characterization is more mature. You don't really get enough of Darcy. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a good way to put it. And so what you get of Knightley is way better than what you get of Darcy. I I would easily put him in. Well, the section I keep thinking about of Darcy, and it's a really sweet section from Pride and Prejudice, but it's just you only hear about it through Lizzie hearing the stories, is when they go to Pemberley. Is that the name of Darcy's house? Mm -hmm. They go to Pemberley. She visits it. Lizzie's there by herself. She's with the servant, and the servant starts to describe what a wonderful guy Darcy was, and it's a real wake-up call, and it's a sweet moment where you realize and lizzie has that interior monologue where she thinks here's a man who so many people's happiness depends on and he's making them all happy where you hear that described and lizzie hears the anecdote about it you actually see that with knightley you see him be that dude who's just a real pillar of his community and my understanding
beginning is that given his rank and his status, he would be like, he would actually be the magistrate of this community or something like that. And you see him kind of bear that responsibility yeah, see, for everyone. Yeah, you see him with his servants. You see him with Robert Martin. You mm-hmm. see, you don't actually see him with Robert Martin, but you get that little story, that little insight. And, and then you think, yeah, this is the kind of man that, that Lizzie hears that Darcy is. Right. Mm-hmm. That we hear second, third hand that Darcy is. And we but, never see it. But we get to see it in Nightly. Yeah, yeah that's all he and, does is, I mean, even just, I mean, yeah, he had the hots for Emma, but just, just making friends with and visiting boring old Mr. Woodhouse, it's like... As, he, well, as, even, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, even, even uh, Darcy's relationship and care for his sister. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- it, not to make this weird, but you, you, could, you can make a case that we actually see that in Knightley's care for Emma until the point where, you know, the romance. Yeah, but I'm, I'm willing to give Mr. Knightley the benefit of a doubt here and say that whether the romance bloomed or not, whether he felt any traction or not, he's doing a really good duty by Emma and by uh, Mr. Woodhouse that just comes out of his principled character. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Just his ability to hang out and play games or whatever with boring old comes Mr. over Woodhouse every day and, because he knows that poor Emma's going to be by herself and Mr. Woodhouse needs the company and needs a trusted friend. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's just part of his responsibilities. He's got this aging, self-pitying, uh, hypochondriac widower mm. and his spoiled daughter that somebody should be looking after them and be around them. So he, does. he does. He goes around and he does all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Yeah. He. he will visit the Bateses, whatever, whatever he needs to do. It actually, in a weird way, it makes you appreciate what, what was probably good about the, that landed gentry. You know, I mean, you always in these novels wonder, like, did they have jobs? What did they do? But you understand Mr. Knightley could actually spend his whole day doing good thing after good thing after good thing, making a lot of people's lives better who rely on him. So I put him number one in my list of Jane Austen's male hotties. I only have two to choose from, so he's my number one, he's your too. Number I think he's my number one, too. Well, there you go. Even with Colin Firth emerging from the lake. Uh, well, yeah, probably. If we could just get a scene of Knightley emerging from a lake. <laughs> if, if only. If only. <laughs> Jane Austen let us down on Jeremy, that one. Jeremy Nor- is it Jeremy North? Jane Austen in the movie, let everybody yeah. down on Darcy, too. Yeah. <laughs> she did. But the good old, <laughs> it wasn't the BBC, but the good old filmmakers did not let us down on yeah, that one. She did not describe that for us. No. Well, Colin Firth, too. That's just funny. <laughs> that has become such a... What else do we want to say about Emma? Is, is she a feminist hero, guys? <clears throat> yes. I mean, she makes her own destiny. She's not going to get married. She's proactive in love. She she brings people together. She's not proactive in love. No, she's proactive in doing her own thing. I mean, I think that everything that would make her a feminist icon is what Jane Austen sees as making her foolish. So <laughs> so maybe she is a feminist icon. Yeah. Matter. Well, here's the reason I have to. Nevertheless, she persisted. Right. <laughs> um, and then she grew up and became a lady. Right. <laughs> which is what all you feminists should, you know, I don't know, maybe aspired. Yep. Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Our 40, what, some, some odd president of the United States, probably. <laughs> My dear, everybody is a feminist until they grow up and mature. I feel stupid asking the question of whether Emma's a feminist hero, but the introduction to my novel, which I failed to bring, I've got a jank copy from our library, but it says that, I wish I'd brought it, but the introduction to my novel, written by a scholar, a modern scholar, says, 
that the introducer, the person that's writing the introduction, is perplexed and saddened and does not know how to feel about the ending because the ending is Emma giving up her free will. The ending is Emma settling into domesticity and she doesn't know whether Jane Austen is actually portraying that as a good thing or a bad thing. Well, I mean, I can help out our poor perplexed scholar. I'll help her out. Jane Austen is portraying it as a good thing. Is she? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our poor perplexed scholar needs to go back to grammar school. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear that it's a very good thing. But if you read between the lines, like, you know. Oh, I guess, yeah. (laughs) Smoke enough pot, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) If you need to justify your academic career by inventing fictions out of 500-year-old pieces of literature, then, yeah, maybe. That's just, it's so frustrating about the new way, the the way that scholarship has gone, even in some... It's only 300 years old, but... What? I said it was 500 years old. Oh, this? What? This podcast? (laughs) Yeah, that's... Monkey Sue's uncle? (laughs) Proceed. Um, I'm confused now. (laughs) Uh, That's so frustrating where scholarship... Oh, yeah. Um, I forget what I was going to (laughs) say. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, we need a scholarship rant right here. Remind me what we were... Oh, this this stupid author that was oh, yeah, reading yeah, yeah. between the lines. It's frustrating because the... The, all new scholarship thinks that it has to be inventive and creative with the way that they're thinking and theories that they're coming up with. When at one point, all that scholarship was, it was preserving knowledge and making sure that people understood the knowledge that had been preserved and handed down, and it was seen as oh, it was conservative, and now it has to be innovative, innovative and open. And so, as soon progressive, you, and the only way for that to go is stupidity and insanity, because eventually you have to start saying really dumb things, and so then you get people starting to talk about how you you have whole committees ba- devoted to ecology in literature and machinery in literature, and how we're cyborgs somehow by the act of reading and it's all and you just want to tell them all to shut up it's just <laughs> you guys are in your ivory castle that nobody cares about mm-hmm. so well the classic terrible jane austen essay in my mind is the one by virginia wolf and what virginia wolf does is instead of talking about the novels that jane austen actually wrote she says jane austen died when she was 42 but if she'd lived Let's think about some of the novels that she would have written. And then Virginia Woolf proceeds to actually make arguments about Jane Austen based on these hypothetical novels that Virginia Woolf thinks that Jane Austen would have written if she'd lived, but that Jane Austen did not, in fact, live or or write because she died. And it's just like... If Jane Austen would have lived a little longer and come, she would have come to uh, as mature an understanding of the world as I have yeah. and would have embraced my worldview and then her novels would have taken the shape of my worldview. And this, therefore, vindicates and justifies my worldview. Yeah, it's actually the, ex- the exact same approach people take towards Flannery O'Connor. So she wrote these weird short stories that blew up the world at the time that she was writing them. Everybody liked them, but they really didn't want to like them. And then she said these things about how, well, yeah, I'm actually writing about your sin and judgment. and You're going to die and you're going to have to face God. And all the academics were like, but they're still good stories. We have to somehow justify the fact that we like it. And then so one way they do it is just imagine what she would have written had she not died <laughs> at 35. <laughs> So if you're a woman writer, the moral is you need to live until you're about 90 so that no one can speculate about the kinds of things that you would have written. Well, it's hard for me to play devil's advocate for the sake of discussion because I have no idea where this this person, this scholar is coming from. But I just think it's 
worth mentioning that a respected scholar in an introduction published by a major publisher, I think I've got a penguin, I'm not sure which what edition I have of the novel, but their introduction is all about how if we read between the lines of the novel, we can see Jane Austen subverting the very things that it seems to me that she celebrates. Maybe I'm stupid and I just don't understand Jane Austen as well as the, the, the new critics and the scholars and stuff, but it seems like this novel kind of celebrates like the patriarchy and marriage and authority for men and stuff. The place that I've seen this sort of criticism most with Emma is with Jane Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And people like to talk about how she was at this place where she could either choose being a governess, which was degrading, or she could choose to marry this playboy, Frank Churchill, which is degrading. And so actually what those critics will do is they'll take Frank Churchill and make him out and they'll they'll take him and put the, him in their monster squad. Hmm. And so... Clever. Yeah, so he's awful. And so she has to go and marry the monster so she doesn't have to go and become a governess. So she was... Oh, what's it called? The bull's horns. Some sort of paradox where you have to choose between two evils. Yes. <laughs> there is a paradox like that. And I don't remember what it's called. Anyways, that that's where I've seen it mostly is because she could, like we've talked about, becoming a governess would be a step down in society for her. So she has to then go and marry this guy who flirts with every woman he comes across well let's we're jumping around a little bit here but let's 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 talk about that let's talk about what if anything jane austen is because everybody it's it's easy to say it's i don't even want to bother disabusing the feminist critics of their notions because to me they're just ridiculous but what a lot of otherwise sensible people do say about jane austen is that her novels are all about class and about money it doesn't seem to me that that's correct i'll go ahead and give the answer before i give the test or give my answer but this novel probably of all her novels comes the closest to having something like what everybody tends to think Jane Austen is about, which is about a woman's place in society and how she could maneuver that and manipulate that and how people could work within the class systems. And everybody always assumes it's a veiled criticism of the class system. What, if anything, is Jane Austen saying about class and about her society and its relationship to class in this novel? Well, if we let Mr. Knightley speak for Jane, which I think he comes the closest to speaking for her, it's that people have a place and it's ridiculous to try and and leads to some bad and, and comedically foolish situations to try and get out of that and ignore it. I mean, what she's saying about class is that it's a real thing. Deal with it. Yeah. Like she's not saying she's not making an argument against the class against class against the existence of certain classes. She's not even making an argument. I don't I want to say she's not even making an argument for she's simply like here it is. This is the way it is. Mm. What about the heart rending plight of Jane Fairfax, which you do. Jane Fairfax is an orphan who got taken in by somebody who loved her father and respected him. Mm. She was well taken care of given she 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 had nothing. She was cared for, she was well trained, she was well endowed with good gifts by God. And so here she is, the benefactor of just the generosity of everyone around her, and she gets to be positioned as a governess in a great household, or she marries Frank Churchill, who may not be the best man, but turns out he's not as bad as he could be. He's no Mr. Knightley. There's no question about that. He's also not a Wickham, though. Like, But he's not afraid. Wickham. Yeah. He's got his flaws and his sins, and they're real. And there's, but we see, we see his, he, he, he is like Emma. He and Emma are set up as parallels, and he is just as immature as she is, and 
his perceptions of things are not what they are. And we see that in his letter. He perceived all this stuff and made all these assumptions about what Emma was thinking that weren't true. And I believe that those were his sincere judgments, but he, you know, and he let things go too far. And then he apologizes and he accepts responsibility basically for himself and asks forgiveness. And he's not nightly, but he's he he's maturing too. And it's a good match. I well, mean, and in the sense that you want to extend charity to Emma because if Mr. Knightley, who's such a dude and so cool, sees something in her, there must be something there. If Jane Fairfax sees something in Frank Churchill, there must be something there because we know Jane Fairfax is beyond compare in her. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it speaks well of Frank Churchill that he wants to marry this woman for who she is and not because of any advantage he, she brings to him. He could have earnestly tried to woo Emma and possibly could have succeeded in earnestly trying to woo Emma and could have gained every advantage by it and pleased his family and everything. But he wasn't actually interested in that. He screwed up with Emma. He was wrong. But Jane was his girl. And so that speaks of a... He has a harder time overcoming his personality for his principles, but there are principles there. And they're real principles and they're good principles. He, he doesn't always act on them. He has greater difficulty uh, a, a, attaining them. But they're, but they're still there and they're, and they're still real. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm underselling his weaknesses because now I'm remembering, you know, he, he goes and he, doesn't he have a gambling habit and some stuff like that too early on. But I really do think... We, think, yeah. we see a man who's on a parallel path to Emma, who is maturing, and who we do see grow and mature by the end of the novel, and his maturation's not complete, and he's clearly not in Emma's class. But yeah, I, I don't think that, I don't remember how we started, but whatever it was, I'm against it. <laughs> <laughs> what were we saying? What were we saying? I asked you about the plight of... Uh... Poor Jane Fairfax. Um, well, yeah, all I was trying to say is that... Sorry, here I go again. <laughs> all I was trying to say is she's not in any way disadvantaged. She's just... She's she's had the misfortune of losing her parents and there being nobody to take care of her and except that she's taken care of and she's gonna... It is unfortunate that, you know, somebody of her abilities is looking at the possibility of becoming a governess. But you know what? She doesn't end up that way. Yeah, I mean, I think Jane Austen's perfect moral imagination allows Jane Fairfax to escape the horrible fate. I mean, there it, you do have to deal with the fact, I think, that it's portrayed as something of a horrible fate, you know, that all the other characters and Emma herself thinks isn't it a tragedy. You know, they're talking about it like she's, she's going to be sold into slavery or something like that. And it's Miss Elton who's <clears throat> championing it championing it yeah Yeah. miss elton the horrible miss elton is miss elton needs to keep jane fairfax down because she exposes how bankrupt she is as a lady as an accomplished lady so i think that is the closest that you could come to making an argument that jane austen is criticizing the caste system of her society but then you have to bring harriet into it and you have to compare harriet to jane and i think that's when it gets interesting yes because harriet's happiness is ending right back where she should have been in the first place. Right. And that's the comedy is... And I mean, in that sense, it's a very classical comedy form. You have the peasants 
and the lower class ending up with the lower class in a happy marriage and the upper class ending up with the upper class in a happy marriage and the comedy comes from mixing the two and seeing what happens. But in the end, oil and water don't mix and they go back to where they're supposed to go and everything's happy. And you get to see why. Yeah, I mean, it's very Shakespearean in that sense. See, so. idiots, this is what happens when you try to step out of your place. Yeah, people who are meant to be miserable are miserable because they marry another miserable person. Like water, the Eltons. Water finds its level. Yeah. <laughs> or like Frank Children, or Frank Children, Frank uh, Churchill's step uh, mom. <laughs> Everybody's just like overjoyed when she dies and <laughs> he finally gets every, everything that she wants. And, and there was great rejoicing. <laughs> even all our even all our hero, even Mr. Knightley's making snide comments about how fortunate for him that <laughs> she died just at the exact right time uh, i really liked that so i mean uh, do we want to say that jane austen actually isn't criticizing the the tragedy of jane fairfax's potential future is just one of those things that happens and it's yeah. sad but yeah i think so yeah I, I think jake's right that she's not very political she's just showing you what the reality of the world and where her wisdom and discernment comes in is the way that people, I mean, these people are going to behave this way, whether or not they're in Britain, Mm -hmm. their character is going to come out. So if, if Knightley had been born into a lower class, he would have become a Mr. Martin. Right. Right. And Jane Austen allows for a universe with like, you know, if she's like we talked about with Pride and Prejudice, if Jane Austen is the god of this universe, then she creates a universe where water finds its level and where Jane Fairfax isn't stuck. You know, Jane Fairfax is able to move up because that's what she deserves. And Harriet is (laughs) needs to go back down because she's pretty she's Harriet. And that there can be happy. There's happiness there. Yeah, not just so some ha- happiness. Happiness but- comes with embracing your station, and yeah. except in part of what we see, you know, the Eltons are not a happy couple, and it's because they're reachers. Yeah, they're both reachers, and they're not content with their lot in life. They feed and, off each other, and yeah, so they're miserable, and they make everybody else around them miserable. Miss Bates, for her flaws, is content with her position, and we see that come out too and that's it ends up being a really sweet thing yeah harriet finds her place yeah well the final thing the final image we get of harriet is you know it says something like she was with those who would keep her out of trouble and give her what little she needed to do to occupy her mind you know it sounds a little bit condescending sort of to modern (laughs) ears but it's just like it's just like you know what harriet was simple and she just needed a simple you know some some stuff to keep her happy and that's what she got, and that's all that some people need, and we don't need to be offended on Harriet's behalf and say that Harriet deserved more and yeah. needed to go out there and assert her place in society or whatever. I mean, it's saying some interesting things that apply to a lot of our modern situation, like the liberals. They all want to, I don't know, man. Not everything is equal. That's the lesson that Jane Austen wants us to see, or not even a lesson she's trying to teach us. It's just the way that she sees the world. It's not everyone. It's what we would focus on because it's yeah. so alien to the mm-hmm. way that we've yeah. been taught, the way that our own uh, societal structure is built. Yeah, Everyone can become president and everyone has the right, right. to be trying. You can be just, whatever you want to be. And it's just stupid because everybody in the back of their mind knows that no, right. some people are a Harriet Smith. Right. A simple, artless, amiable girl, as I think Mr. Knightley calls her. And it's a compliment. That's and what, yeah, and that's whatever good you, for her. Whatever you think of Hillary Clinton, she was never a Harriet Smith. No. Right. Yeah. She was uh, probably a Lizzie gone bad or something. Right. <laughs> gone sour. Something. 
whatever you think of Donald Trump, he was never a Mr. Martin. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the point is that people have different personalities and different giftings that have been given to them. And that's yeah, a nasty lesson. We don't like to hear it, but you see it all over the place. Um, and it's not just the liberals, the conservatives do it too. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, everybody believes that we're all created equal and da 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 da, da. But what about Mrs. Elton as another, the... What was no, that? No, I was about to do another jab at classical education. Oh, oh go ahead. Oh, I can't. I don't want to talk over that. Every child can be made great if they just learn some Latin. <laughs> if they just learn some Latin, yeah. And do some paper mache. Yeah. I'll just ask the question from Twitter. Does Mr. Woodhouse belong on our monster squad? <laughs> No. Nice too. He's kind of harmless and lame. He's not harmless. He's selfish. He is very selfish. And if, if and we want to blame, just like we blamed Mr. Bennett for anything wrong with his wife or daughters, I think we can squarely, and I think Austin intends for us to squarely lay the blame for any flaws that Emma may have at the fact that her mom is dead. She doesn't even hardly remember her. Her governess was more of a best friend, and her dad was just a weird hypochondriac th- that didn't do anything. Yeah, but I think that that's and a broken man who couldn't couldn't bear the pain of widowhood or wi- being a widower mm-hmm. rather i think that the reason why i don't want to dignify mr woodhouse with the uh Appalachian. with induction into our monster squad is that it's set up from the very beginning that Brandon just kicked his boots up on the table like <laughs> i got it it's very texas <laughs> <laughs> it's just a cramp induced keep going <laughs> Uh, the reason I don't want to give him, uh, I don't want to dignify him with that is that it's set up for us from the beginning that there are multiple contributing factors in why Emma is the way she is. She has a pathetic widower of a father who couldn't handle, she never had a mother. And if her mother had been, but she wasn't, maybe dad wouldn't, but he wasn't. And then the governess ended up being, you know, sister, best friend. And so she's failed by a lot of people. And then she has her own natural flaws that just haven't had opportunity to be exposed. Everywhere she goes, nobody, there's only one person that sees her for what she is. In the world, only one person that sees her for what she is. Everywhere she goes, she's flattered. Everywhere she goes, she's spoiled and coddled. And so you don't get a picture it's not given to you the way I think Mr. Bennett's given to you as it's really his fault, guys. Like, yeah, Mr. Woodhouse is responsible. Yeah, he's answerable. Yeah, it's his fault. Yeah, he should be. But there are reasons given why he couldn't, and some of them are his sins and selfishness, and then there are lots of other. Well, I think what you might, if I can maybe put words in your mouth, or if I can just say my own words that interact with the words that you just said. That's probably better. <laughs> That's <pretty> okay. <laughs> what, I, what I hear you saying, Jay, is or maybe I don't hear you so what I want what I'm going to say after much preface is that and I'm going to lose this train of thought as I just jabber on okay I'll pick it up Mr. Bennett had the ability had that's what every... I was going to say I was going to wait let me put the words in your mouth because okay, these are ahead. the words I was going to put Mr. Bennett was damnable because he was capable of doing better he was capable of doing well he was smart he was acerbic he saw everyone clearly Mr. Woodhouse is just is an not. idiot I mean he's just like a broken it's not capable it's of sort of anything. like if you took if you killed off mr bennett and had those girls growing up in mrs bennett's house it's it's a it's a similar situation he doesn't have the tools he's still responsible it's still but he but he's not nearly as damnable as mr bennett who's not only responsible but capable mm-hmm. and not just responsible and capable but actively harmful mr woodhouse is passively harmful and is not competent and capable of 
of doing what needs to be done for a lot of different reasons. And so there's a, just this sense in which we're talking about two different levels, two different planes here. Should he be more capable and competent? Yeah. Should You can't quite let him off the hook. You can't let him off the hook. If he wasn't so self-absorbed, selfish, and self-pitying, he, if he could get his, what's a, what's his a way to caboose, say he is? His yes. head out of his backside. Yes, that, that's what I was trying to say. If he could get his head out of his backside long enough to see he has a daughter that he has to care for and discipline, and he needs to attend to her sins and her flaws, and maybe his governess is actually a miserable failure. One way or another, he needed to take responsibility, but he didn't, yeah. he didn't have it. Right. in him to do that. So I don't think he... Is he villainous? Yeah. But he doesn't rise to the level of Mr. Bennett in villainy. In yeah. Earlier, earlier, you said that Mr. Bennett scoffed. Yeah. He just sat there and laughed. He laughed. He thought it was yeah. funny. So right. mean, that he, means right he there. He put his wife out there and exposed her to ridicule because he thought it was hilarious. Yeah. He let his girls run around and act the fool because he thought it was funny. And he was just like, oh, yeah, no, they'll get over it in time, maybe. And it bit him. But that's 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 malevolent. That's actively harmful. Mr. Woodhouse isn't actively harmful. The the closest you can get to his to him being actively harmful is his flattery of Emma. Emma's just the you're just the best. You're always right. You you. But even there, it's it's job. not him thinking like I will flatter her to get something. It's him just honestly thinking she's the best. I mean, he's just yeah. he lacks the mental or emotional capabilities to see things accurately. And unfortunately, some people do. And it's not that they're not responsible before God, but there's a big difference between choosing not to do something and just kind of lacking the equipment for it. And he's, I mean, he's emotionally handicapped. I don't know. I'm I'm not a widower, but I I tremble to think what would happen to me if something happened to my wife and what kind of father would I become without her? You know, it's just, you have to make some allowance there too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And there again, we can be guided by the impeccable judgment of Mr. Knightley, who seems to have affection for the man and certainly for his daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly for the daughter. <laughs> He's been watching her since she was 13 years old, as we know. Uh, I guess we might as well talk about that. I don't know what to say. Is it creepy? Should we be creeped out? Oh, we already kind of I, mean, I guess we already talked about it. Did we already talk about that? We decided it, the way that it was handled about as well as it could possibly be. Yeah. Mr. Darcy, given that he fell in love with a 13-year-old, Mr. Knightley acquitted himself admirably. Is that what we're yeah. yeah. saying? He didn't pursue her. <laughs> in fact, he never really pursued her. So I honestly, I he says that, but I you get the impression that he just, he had a special regard for this girl. He didn't let it get any farther than that in his mind. He just had a special regard for her and it matured as she matured. Yeah, I think he didn't really think of it as love until jealousy entered the picture mm-hmm. with Frank Churchill. And you have to allow Mr. Knightley to be a good man. That's the other thing that this person in my introduction was very uneasy with was Mr. Knightley's whole deal. I mean, they were just, I think the introducer says something like, was Mr. Knightley just waiting for Emma to become nubile and it's like no actually that's not how Mr. Knightley was thinking about it because Mr. Knightley's not a creep like you introducer no I think you're right I don't think he was I think that <laughs> just like that I thought that was all you were gonna say yeah, nope. you're gonna say <laughs> right no I, I do think that the entrance of Frank Churchill is where it became love until then it was like, like Jake said a fond regard and I think he can look back and and see that that fond regard w- was the seed of what became his love for her and he can say I've loved you since you were 13 and but I don't think it has to be 
more than that. I mean, I will say that I had a fond regard of my wife before I ever, ever had any... I was a senior in high school and she was in eighth grade. And I thought, man, that girl is really something. I like that girl a lot. She'll make somebody a great wife someday. It completely innocently not even ever occurring to me. You know, I was a senior in high school. I I was attracted to girls that were my age. And, you know, but then, you know, time happened. And my then 14-year-old girl that I had high regard for grew into a woman that I loved. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can look back and say I, the seeds were there. Right. So the lesson of this novel, I guess, is that uh, as a 30-year-old man, I should find a broken young woman and uh, try and fix her. And uh, if, if it works out well, I should wife her, right? Yeah. That's what Jane Austen wanted me to take away from this, right? <laughs> yep. Nathan. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Jake's not going to even dignify that one with, with an answer. Uh, let's see here. Gosh, is there anything else we need to discuss besides the, the big monster question? I feel like we should be able to get like hours out of this book, but we really have covered most of everything I wanted to talk about. I can't think of anything else that I want to talk about. It's great talking about Austin. It, it, she makes it so simple because you just get to talk about each character. Right. Yeah. You know, you spend time with each character and then you're done because it's all about the characters and their development or revelations about their true character that happened over the course of the novel. and. And she sews a nice little bow on it at the end, and that's what you've got. And your job as a reader is to figure out how you can become a better man or a woman as you see yourself in each of the characters. To read them Or fail to see yourself in each of the characters. Well, I thought... This novel, I think, has a particularly nice example of that in Miss Bates, who, if you've read your Austin, if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you're kind of trained to just think, oh, here's another one of Austin's obnoxious stock idiots. Here's another fool for us to make fun of. And I think this is this is maybe a mark of maturity in Austin's writing and thinking that you don't see so much in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Mrs. Ba- Miss Bates is allowed to be very ridiculous, very foolish, funny stupid character but then there's some real sweetness and pathos to her that comes in yeah it is a it is a sad scene when emma says that thing about her the way that she responds is beautiful and uh when she's you know and and sorry you're gonna explain it you you mean this when emma makes the snide comment yeah and she just says says, oh yes i i I see now i see your full meaning i I am a a very ridiculous person and then she goes on and of course she can't stop talking about (laughs) it because she's miss bates and she just talks but but how good it is of emma to have put up with her to condescend to her so much when she's so uh, what's the word ridiculous or whatever yeah, when yeah. she's so when she's so ridiculous and you realize she's not stupid i mean she is stupid but she's not she she knows she's obnoxious you yeah know? it's mean, a much more she's not mr collins you know or mrs mrs bennett i think austin has gives us more compassion for her than she does for shows for mrs bennett who's a very similar kind of character but she really shoves your nose in the obnoxiousness of miss bates and makes you feel with emma makes uh, you listen to all those speeches m- for page for after page, page after page after page and it's so annoying and then she gives you a really great payoff that you know that scene happens and Emma says what you think and then and then that leads to the great scene of the novel <laughs> right and yeah. you know all of that all it's just a great payoff all of that putting up with Miss Bates for page after page after page pays off in a really great scene and Miss Bates gets to come out looking sweeter for it mm-hmm. and Emma then has to go and humble herself and yeah that that scene that section of the novel is as moving to me as anything in 
Pride and Prejudice, I will say. Maybe it's not ultimately of as much consequence in the characters' lives in some sense, but... It is for Emma. Yeah. It is her transformation that's what marks her coming of age. I mean, you just really, you really, really love Mr. Knightley when you, you, <laughs> you just like, what a dude there. I mean. Yeah, if, there, if there's a place in the novel I'm going to cry, it's there. Uh, I did a little bit, actually, just a little. But I knew it was coming, I think, probably. <laughs> it being the second time helped with the, the crying. It was very relatable, for one thing. I mean, like, I've had that situation of my mouth running off with me or just doing or saying something where you're just like a Looney Tunes character that's run off a cliff and suddenly you realize you're hovering in midair and then you you fall down and you know or or you say something and do something and you don't even realize how terrible it is until somebody like Mr. Knightley points it out and then suddenly you're crushed by it and suddenly you're mortified by it you can't you will go the rest of your life you know you won't be able to think of it without pain and yeah (laughs) had those moments but so to bring it all back around also to class and what she's saying about things and why it's uncomfortable for us today is because what we don't like especially about hierarchy is that it tells us that we have responsibility we have if there's hierarchy there is responsibility and there is also humility and there's um obedience and all this and this all comes out in why mr knightley can make emma feel so ashamed of what she's done because she abused mrs bates she abused miss bates with um with her position over her, so the the line, you know, what was something something like what was caused for your contempt should have been cause for compassion. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> just... talk about the dagger. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, what's the exact line? Uh, we're just gonna have to look it up. I think it's yeah. chapter forty-three, I believe. <sighs> How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? You whom she had known from an infant, who she had seen grow up from a period when her notice was an honor. That's just like, ah. To have you now in thoughtless spirit and the pride of the moment, laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece too, and before others, many of whom would be entirely guided by your treatment of her. Her situation should secure your compassion. It was badly done, indeed. <laughs> it was badly done. Yeah. That uh, The way that guy pulls that line off in the Gwyneth Paltrow's scene you uh, showed me earlier, I really liked it. That's good. That guy's, that's a good, that's actually a good version. He's a good Mr. Knight. It's, it's worth seeing. You should, you should watch the Gwyneth Badly Paltrow. done, Emma. Yeah. Much better than that dork in the other version. Badly it's, done. It's the, it's that little whisper at the end. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, nice, nicely done. Actor, yeah. nicely done. <laughs> He's a good Mr. Knightley. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I, I want to go watch that version. You should. Now. It's it's good, and Gwyneth Paltrow's good, actually. You know, I started to bring it up on iTunes, and uh, the clip that they played was very discouraging. <laughs> She's sitting there at the table with her dad, and it's weird and awkward. And then they look out the window, and there's Knightley. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not all like that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I want to watch. I'd actually this. say that most of the characters, the actors they choose, are really good in that. We movie. got Alan Cumming as Mr. Elton he's good yeah. um, the lady that plays Harriet Smith is good yeah Miss Bates is as you probably She's, saw in that clip was good who's she the mother from well I have seen according to the back of my Barnes and Noble Classics book one of the great adaptations of Emma which is Clueless oh yeah Clueless <laughs> I have never yeah. seen Clueless I have I, not either I have seen Clueless yeah, Brandon I'm glad you've never seen Clueless because <laughs> I thought I was the only person in the world that had never seen Clueless so how does it live up to Jane Austen's immortal tale, Clueless? Um, I'm afraid it doesn't live up oh, to doesn't it. doesn't it? That's a disappointment. <laughs> surprise, the, surprise. The, the plots and storylines are all the same, except that Frank Churchill turns out to be gay. Oh, well, hey. <laughs> 
The, none of them are named properly except for Elton. Elton's his first name. They don't call him Mr. Knightley. <laughs> it's Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is Mr. Knightley. Oh, Paul Rudd is really? Knightley. He was old enough to have been in Clueless. I guess I could see Paul Rudd as Knightley. As a hipster, postmodern version of Knightley. Yeah, he's he's a college student. I'm a high school student. I he's pre-law. It. No, he's not even. He's, he's She's a, an elementary school student. <laughs> she's she's like a senior in high school and he's like a he's like a law student and her dad is it is actually pretty there is that kind of weird creepy element to it which is her dad's had like three or four marriages and his mom was one of them from a different marriage so he is emma uh what's her name in the movie no it's uh alicia silverstone no yeah is it that's the Anyhow, it's like Claire or something like that. Anyhow, he's her former stepbrother. He's but not, they don't have any blood in common. They don't have any blood in common, and they don't have a legal relationship anymore. But what happens is her dad's like a high-powered attorney, and he's in law school, so he's like always hanging out, trying to avoid his mom or his stepmom, his new stepmom, or I don't know what. He's like reading Nietzsche and stuff like that. But it's also always there for Emma. Like, you know, she gets stranded after a party and creepy Elton who she's trying to set up with Harriet comes on to her in the car and she gets out and gets mugged and he goes and rescues her or something like that you know oh so they mix up the Harriet scene with yeah the bandits and that's a weird scene <laughs> that, that gypsy scene yeah <laughs> I was doing no that. they actually do the gypsy scene though the gypsy scene happens at the mall when they're at the yeah they're at the mall the Harriet character is flirting with some guys they're they're flirting with her and it looks like oh she's you know getting some real attention and then suddenly they'll like tip her over the side you know it's like a multi-level mall and, oh, that's you know, scary whoever the emma character is there with her gay friend who she doesn't know yet is gay or maybe she does at this point no they're like shopping together or something and he's like you know got sweet style just her tastes and all that sort of thing and then he runs over and is like you jerks you and you know and oh, it's yeah. got its sweet elements to it but yeah it doesn't doesn't quite live up to it when you <laughs> I am. I can I explain that I never voluntarily have watched that movie in my life. It's just a consequence of circumstance. Well, great, Jake. Thanks for telling us about your favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Leave an edit point so we can get into that comment. And make it sound like you just. Um... <laughs> Well, that confrontation scene's sure pretty awesome. I don't know anybody else want to say anything about that. Nope. It's a good scene. Mr. Knightley's pretty awesome. and He's a hunk. He's a hunk, yeah. One of BuzzFeed's top potties. No, I don't know. I, just, I think that scene moves me personally because I've been there. I've had that moment where somebody just takes the blinders off of you, your eyes and you, you realize you go from in one second not thinking that you're the most horrible person piece of slime that's ever to walk the earth and then one second later the blinders are off and you're like oh i'm the most one horrible piece of slime to ever walk the earth and it's just an awful feeling yeah but then you you love the people that actually do discipline you like that if you're a wise and mature person like i am you do at least um let's see if there's anything else in my notes i want to talk about before we get to the big question let's see we covered buzzfeed right oh yeah can't leave BuzzFeed uncovered. Um, somebody, it's a dirty job as somebody had to do it. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, did we talk about the Eltons enough? Say Mrs. Elton sure was dumb, huh? If there's anybody that you actually want put in their place, it's not so much Miss Bates as it is Mrs. Elton. Yeah. My goodness. She doesn't get that scene, though. No, she doesn't. Does she get... She does get humiliated by the whole fact of Emma Knightley happening, right? Yeah, and she also, I guess, kind of gets humiliated when... Mr. Knightley dances with Harriet. Maybe we should take 
pleasure in the fact that it was beneath Knightley and Emma and Austin to even bother with Mrs. Elton. It's right. sort of damning in itself. Oh, but yeah, Mrs. Elton's just not worth it. I mean, Lady Catherine, of course, you got to have the scene where Lizzie tells it to her and, you know, everybody cheers, you know, big. That's, that's a fist pumper of a scene. Mrs. Elton's not even worth that, really, I don't think. She's just there to be nasty and petty. A lot, a lot like Bingley's sister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If she had any of the things that she pretends to have, then she would be worthy of a takedown. Now, would we be willing to say that Emma's maybe a little bit unfair to Mrs. Elton? Not that Mrs. Elton isn't terrible because she is, but Emma makes allowances for the people that she likes to cross class boundaries in a way yeah. that she's pretty hard on Mrs. Like, Mrs. Elton's really not doing anything that Mrs. Weston doesn't sort of do, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if the comparison quite works, but Emma doesn't mind the Westons in putting together a party for her mm-hmm. to come to because she likes the Westons, but she does feel like every possible place where she could accuse Mrs. Elton of crossing boundaries. Yeah, she I mean, will. I think there's some prejudice there on Emma's part, obviously. You're going to be more likely to hate the people that are hateable. <laughs> and everything they do is going to bother you and rub you the wrong way. So I just think there's... Emma tips her hands at that. She tries to, at some point, come up with a justification that, you know, when good people do dumb things, then it's okay. And when stupid people do stupid things, then it's not. Yeah. So, like, she says something like that, basically, at, at a certain point. Yeah. It's probably, a, I don't know, maybe a bad, really bad paraphrase. <laughs> silly things do cease to be silly if they are done by sensible people in an impudent way. There's more to it than that, right? Well, that's the only part of the quote I could find. But he gets the gist. Yeah. That's the gist. Shut up, Emma. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I I have to say... This will this will be our segue into the monster section. I do find some of Emma's sins to be quite relatable and almost lovable in their like I've been there quality. Um, and I think maybe that's what Jane Austen was getting at when she says a character that no one but myself will like is Jane Austen probably had a, just like you. Yeah, she had a decent amount of sympathy for her. I, 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 I really like that scene where she and Jane Fairfax both play the piano and she realizes that she should have been applying herself for the last 15 years and she goes home and like Practice practices for, for two hours. Bring her vigorously for a couple hours. Like as if she's one of those guys that like works out the day before he goes to the beach so that his, you know, muscles will supposedly have a little sheen to him. Actually, I find her Emma's whole relationship to Jane Fairfax to be funny and relatable. I mean, I think maybe we, I, I won't say we've all had it, but I know I've had those people in my life where I know they're good people. I know they're the best people. I know they're people that would be good for me to cultivate a relationship with. My my friends and my family tell me, you know, oh, you should, you know, and I just don't like them for whatever reason. And and part of what I don't like about them is their, their, their goodness, their wholesomeness for me, the fact that I should be friends with them instead of the cool people that I want to be friends with, you know. The fact that I could be just as awesome as you if I applied myself, but I didn't, so I can't. So, ah, <laughs> yeah. maybe, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have such a high opinion of myself. Oh, but I should, oh. Well, so that's, that's your caveat heading into it? That's uh, my caveat. We'll, we'll see where I land. We'll see where you guys land. It's time to put this quite, and remember, Kara Hobbs's continued listening to this podcast hinges on our answer, gentlemen. When, I, when I'm thinking about this. Oh, wait, let me, let me just ask the question. I, I, I don't know if our readers remember the last episode where I, the question is, is Emma Woodhouse going to be inducted along with 
Has anyone been inducted for 2000? Yes. Anna, what's her face? Anna Karenina was inducted a couple episodes ago. Nobody from our poetry episodes was inducted, but <laughs> perhaps some people should have been. <laughs> there was one that has a secret place in our Monster <laughs> yes. Squad. For... <laughs> yes. The writer of the forbidden poet that, <laughs> of the forbidden poetry that we did not read, he, he and or she will, is in our Monster Squad, but you still don't know who she is, dear Ritter. And listener. you never shall. And you never shall, and you'll always wonder. Is Emma going to go into our monster squad, gentlemen? The way I'm thinking about it, <laughs> she has a lot of sins that are sins of youth, and it makes her, it makes you really hate her at the beginning, but no more than you hate a lot of teenagers. <laughs> and she matures and or she grows up. When you yeah, are or teenager. yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like you were saying, you relate a lot to this stuff and the people who are godly in your life, and you're just like, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because <laughs> you make me feel bad. <laughs> and then um, she matures, and Mr. Knightley has a high esteem of her, and she uh, she does have a liveliness and a wit to her, and you see as she matures what Knightley probably sees in her. And so, like Mr. Bennett, immaturity in his youth just stayed with him, and he became a monster because he never outgrew it, and he never got rid of it. And, um, oh, what's her name? Kathy is just a monster. That's what Steinbeck <laughs> yeah, Stein tells us. Is Why'd she, you have to bring her? There was just, she was I'm just, trying to find away man she was just a monster right. uh, there's a lot of different kinds of monsters that can go robert monster jordan squad. did we introduce him to be inducted I, I think we did say he was part of the monster squad because he was just a seducing yeah and yeah. but similar to emma he never what emma had she out she outgrew it mm-hmm. either circumstances allowed her to jane, jane austen being and yeah being a wise manipulator of her universe gave Provi- her the opportunity guiding providential hand providential hand the providential there we go hand of and then you have hemingway who probably himself should be inducted into the monster <laughs> squad and anna karenina she an had these, threw yeah, herself in front of a train exactly trying to get these things that she should have matured into realizing she just simply shouldn't have and so that's where i'm that's my first thought about it you're saying poor emma doesn't belong in that company i'm not gonna say yet well you're not gonna say but that's your that's just throwing, that's, that's I'm throwing that out there okay throwing that out there jake <clears throat> yeah i think that you could even go farther and say that there's a sense in which Emma's redemption was inevitable because she never had the stuff of monsters, really. She just had her immaturities and sins. Yeah. Whether it was the combination of the guiding hand of Providence and Mr. Knightley and her own good sense, she never became the monster that she could have become. As much as I would like to... Take out your wrath on all those girls you hated in high school or... <laughs> as much as I would like to uh, condemn her to the monster squad, I, I don't think I can do it. I don't think... if we're going to say who's the villain of of the book i can say that emma's the villain of the book as much as she's the heroine but well, she's also the heroine and she she defeats but the she's villain. also the heroine and in the end the heroine wins and gets the guy and and is right to so none of our monsters have been redeemed right no, no. Anna, Anna threw herself in front of a train. Rudyard Kipling, I guess. Yeah. Was our <laughs> oh, yeah, about yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Anna had the little flicker of doubt that she was doing the right thing right before, right before the train. <laughs> she was sliced into um, Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Uh, she's kind of. She wasn't redeemed, but she felt bad. <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Some monster Scrooge. Squad. Scrooge was redeemed, yes. But he really wasn't in the monster. Did, squad. I don't think we, did we, did we, we induct him? To put him in the monster <laughs> no. squad? 
He's he's a class. I mean, he is a, a classic villain. When you say Scrooge, villain. when you say don't be like Scrooge, you're not saying don't be like a nice redeemed, cheerful man. You're saying don't be like a grumpy guy. And it, but if you were going to say don't be like Emma, you'd mean don't be an immature brat who. Right. Yeah. When one thinks of Emma as a type, one thinks of the proud, that she has spoiled brat, high school student type character, and or homeschooled person. Knew some homeschool peep kit girls like Emma, I have to say, guys. Oh, yeah. Lots of them. Yeah. They're proud of, like, they're homeschooled, so... Hopefully they don't all fancy themselves to have turned out like Emma. <clears throat> to have turned out like Mrs. Knightley. Well, I thought you guys... I thought Jake was going to make a big deal out of being, or being a monster. I was going to try, but I don't... You don't have the... I don't really... She doesn't... I don't think she does deserve it. I mean, I think you could argue that even at the beginning of the novel... Her intentions are always good, which is not something you could really say about most of our monsters. She wants to bring people together. She she wants to take Harriet under her wing. So she's doing it in a proud, stupid, immature, spoiled brat way, but she doesn't mean anybody any harm for what that's worth. She needs to grow up. Whereas Kathy meant some harm. When she killed her parents. Yeah, when she... <laughs> Dracula meant some harm, I think, maybe. One, one could argue. When she split yeah. open his chest and made some woman drink of it. I think he was doing that maliciously, that guy. So, I think... I, it's just, yeah, I mean... I'd well, like, even after Harriet, I, I had this. I have this quote here somewhere. After Harry, after the first thing with Mr. Elton, Emma says, The first error and the worst lay at her door. It was foolish, it was wrong to take so active a part in bringing any two people together. It was adventuring too far, assuming too much, making light of what ought to be serious, a trick of what ought to be simple. She was quite concerned and ashamed and resolved to do such things no more. Until she turns around and tries Until to do it Until she turns around again. and does it again. But who can't relate to that? I bet John Dunn could relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been there. I was young once. You guys were young. You did stupid things, and you said, "I'm not going to do that stupid not me, thing." Never, okay. never. Brandon, never you were young this. once. I was young once. <laughs> I did stupid things. Right, Jake was just always Mister Knightley. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I was born this way. Right. Born this way. Some people are born to be pastors. Right. Yeah, yeah. The rest of us. why he's a pastor and we're not. Yeah. yeah, the rest of us have our station. <laughs> we had our station. We, water finds its level. I think you can even see at the very beginning of the novel when Mr. Knightley's like, Emma, you're an idiot. And she's like, no, I'm not. Even with in her repartee with him, there's a certain amount of a conscience there. She's, she's annoyed by him telling her to do the right thing. And that speaks well of her. She doesn't just, she doesn't just blow him off like she would if she had no conscience. And I think her redemption is really super sweet not to be all patronizing about it but i think the scene where mr knightley busts up and confronts her about mrs bates and then she's in tears and everything it's like the fact that she was capable of that level of remorse and of shamefaced repentance and then she goes and visits miss bates and then there's another really sweet scene that comes right after that with the hand yeah mr knightley takes her hand and it looks like he's gonna kiss it but then he doesn't quite and you know she's in sort of embarrassed that mr knightley even finds out but at the same time she's like boy i'm glad he found out so it's just really sweet and relatable and you you gotta love her and i sort of in reading it the second time i really wasn't all that annoyed by her at all i mean i just thought this is the story of a stupid kid there but for the grace of god go us all and there but for the grace of god went 
me. Yeah, I think I think my second reading, if I come to it again, will be much different. Jane Austen just she gives us a happy world with a compassionate God in the form of Jane Austen or in the form of the God that Jane Austen believed in, where sometimes people like that, you know, they're just waiting for a little bit of discipline or the shove in the right direction, and they turn out okay. So there we have it. Not a monster. You can keep listening, Kara. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, sorry is a pretty good end line. I don't think we're going to top that. <laughs> All right. today was written by Brandon Chastain. No, it was not. He improvised a good chunk of it. Yeah, he might have written some stuff for his contextual texting, but the booking person that takes the writing credit is me, Nathan Alberson. The, the guy uh, who takes uh, writing credits for improvised podcasts. For improvised podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The guy that uh, makes snide comments and... Saw that one coming. <laughs> with nightly-like strength puts Nathan in his place with great forbearance. Uh, is Mr. Pastor Jacob Menzel. And uh, Brandon Chastain is here, folks. I'm not introducing him. I'm giving the credits. Hey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you can look we're up Warhorn. We're all still here. Yeah, we're all still here. And you can go to warhornmedia.com to find lots of great content. You can look up Warhorn Media on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram as at Warhorn Media. You can look me up as at Not Famous Nathan on Twitter. You can look up Jake on Twitter as at Jacob Mensel, I think. As at Jacob Mensel, he thinks. And uh, you can look up Jake on Instagram as at Jake Mensel or Jacob Mensel or something, yeah, something like that. Like that. Um, Brandon's on Facebook as Brandon Chastain, I do believe. His That's account right. might be private. I don't know if you, you could try friending him if you want to. Mine's public. Is yours public? Mine is public. Mine is public as it comes. I'm an tr- open book, folks. I like to hide. Brandon likes to hide. <laughs> Try to find me. That's good. You're more like Mr. Knightley, sulking in the corner and judging everyone. That's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm. But acting according to your principles, which are better than everyone else's. Right. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like Mr. Churchill. I'm just like, hey, everybody. Uh, me. Except you're not you and McGregor in a wig. Is, does you, is you, he's in a wig. <laughs> Actually, that's, Brandon? That's the funniest part of, of the Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. I have never revealed this before, but I'm going to reveal this at the very end of the podcast. If you've listened all the way, folks, I am, in fact, Ewan McGregor in a wig. <laughs> <laughs> he just took it off. <laughs> Hello, fans. <laughs> it's, it's me, it's me. Ewan McGregor. It's me, Obi-Wan. <laughs> it's me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> It's very so much you like your voices. Yeah. Uh, I can't. I can't do it. All right. Good night, folks. 